Thanks for joining us at the Canadian Breakpoint, a Canadian infectious diseases podcast by Canadian infectious diseases physicians. I'm Summer Stewart, here with Dr. Rapina Pierwal, pediatric infectious diseases physician from Saskatoon. Today, we're bringing you a highly requested topic, congenital syphilis, and we welcome Dr. Jared Bullard, Provincial Laboratory Section Head of Pediatric Infectious Diseases in Winnipeg, as well as Dr. Karsten Kruger, Antimicrobial Stewardship Fellow at CHEO. Dr. Pierwell. All right. Welcome, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us for another episode of our podcast, The Canadian Breakpoint. Today, we have very, uh, two very special guests on our podcast uh, who will be talking a little bit about um, epidemiology and our project for congenital syphilis in Canada. So we have Dr. Jared Bullard and Dr. Karsten Kruger. Dr. Jared Bullard was born in Nassau, Bahamas and moved to Winnipeg with his family when he was young. He is a product of Manitoba training, having completed his medical degree, including DSC in HIV immunology, pediatric and medical microbiology, and residencies and a fellowship in infectious diseases all through the University of Manitoba. He is currently the section head of pediatric infectious diseases and associate professor in the departments of pediatrics and child health and medical microbiology and infectious diseases. During the pandemic, Dr. Bullard helped define the methodology for studying the infectivity of SARS-CoV-2 and the clinical spectrum of COVID in Canadian children. He is currently working towards redefining the epidemiology, diagnosis, and management of congenital syphilis. His personal interests include his family, wife, Dr. Pamela Skrabeck, and future Dr. Bullard's daughter, Taya and son, Donovan, traveling and high level of sarcasm. And then we have Dr. Kruger, Dr. Carson Kruger, attended medical school at the University of Calgary, pediatrics residency at the University of Toronto, and an ID fellowship at the University of Ottawa. Currently is completing an antimicrobial stewardship fellowship at CHEO and is co-principal investigator of the National Canadian Pediatric Surveillance Program, also known as CPSP study, on congenital syphilis. So welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking about a very important topic. Um, I think we've seen some media coverage around this. We've uh, in our local um, hospitals, I think province wide where I'm in Saskatchewan, Dr. Bullard's in Manitoba. Uh, we're definitely seeing a rise in our numbers here as well. And so kind of without further ado, I think I'll hand it over to Dr. Bullard to let us know a little bit about the epidemiology. So our podcast is really geared towards all audiences. So we have nurses, pharmacists, physicians, trainees, and really across the world. Um, so why don't we uh, talk a little bit about the epidemiology in Canada um, in the last few years and specifically focusing on congenital syphilis? Yeah, when, when I think about this, and I, I've had uh, solid seven years or so at this point to really dig into it, um, Syphilis has been making a comeback in Canada uh, in very specific populations. And so when we were first seeing it, um, and this is kind of across the country as well, in large urban centers, we were thinking primarily our GBMSM population. Right. And that for a variety of different reasons that was occurring. Uh, part of it was uh, in the early 2010s, more related to applications 
that were used for anonymous sex. Um, and there's many challenges with that. And as a result, you can start to see more and more cases of syphilis as public health started to get a little bit more involved in trying to leverage how to use these applications and softwares. Um, they, they managed to get kind of a, a hold on it to some degree in the GBMSM population, but simultaneously, we were starting to see increases in our heterosexual population as well. Right. Which stands to reason. We've seen that in, in with other STIs as well. Um, gradually, what you saw was a migration of syphilis specifically into certain different populations. And so when we're talking about the prairie provinces in particular, we were seeing it in our indigenous First Nations population, uh, both urban, remote, and northern communities. And a lot of that has to do with, with factors associated with being indigenous, uh, which I think Carson will talk about quite a bit more from our study. Uh, and I, I think a lot of us are very familiar with the poverty and uh, substance use and mental health and all right. of these lack of access to, to health care. Yeah. Uh, and because you suddenly have it in the heterosexual population, you have it in women uh, of reproductive age as well. And from that, it stems that if you aren't managing to find all of the women who have syphilis, and we're not diagnosing it, we're not treating it, and we'll see more high-risk syphilis-exposed infants. That's where we started to see a lot more cases. Now, Alberta kind of gave us a little bit of a early hint to it in the 2000s saying like we have a problem we had syphilis numbers in, in babies that were substantially higher than anywhere else in the country it subsequently went away uh, but then now we're seeing it again primarily prairie provinces using across the board uh, and then with the covid pandemic it really just kind of has not been able to be addressed as much as it possible yeah no that's fair yeah i think most of our data so i think um uh, Carson will bring this up as well. But just looking at the rates, I mean, definitely Alberta was leading and then Saskatchewan, Manitoba kind of trailing behind. Um, and and really, um, in terms of the last like few years, we've really seen the spikes um, uh, in congenital syphilis and really focusing on that childbearing age, women of childbearing age uh, being infected. So so when did, so I, and in my experience, CPSP, which is the Canadian Pediatric Surveillance Program, usually targets, you know, rare infections um, when we're, when we're doing surveillance. So how did syphilis kind of make, um, I guess it's, it's appearance in, in CPSP's reporting? How did that come about? Yeah. So um, the, uh, CPSP is a uh, joint program of the uh, Canadian Pediatric Society and the Public Health Agency of Canada and aims to improve uh, health of children by facilitating surveillance and research in uh, into any manner of childhood disorders uh, that are high in uh, sort of disability, morbidity, or cost to society, despite their uh, relative rarity. Okay. Um, you know, it became it came to the attention of the CPS committee um sort of in the late uh 2010s when uh you know you really started to see an increase in uh nationally reported cases of congenital syphilis and so um myself as a, a previous member of that committee uh put together a team uh with Dr. Bullard uh to to help surveil this uh and try to understand uh the Canadian landscape of how we could uh prevent it 
and how uh, it was presenting and how it was being managed. No, that's really important. Yeah. So I think um, definitely seeing kind of the trends over time, looking at, I think a lot of us locally are also trying to kind of see, and we're trying to see over the last like few years, kind of why is this happening? What population is this happening in? But it's nice that we have kind of a central collaboration now with other centers and larger centers, which can also help out some of the smaller centers that are seeing this rise in numbers because obviously you need funding and uh, support systems from public health standpoint as well, right? So so we're very fortunate that we are able to do a project like this. Um, I think, Kristen, you brought up um, kind of the main objective of, of the project, but um, just so our, for our listeners, just so they know kind of what was the clinical question or the hypothesis that we, or what are we trying to aim from this project? Mm-hmm. So as um, as a surveillance study, we uh, predominantly had objectives rather than hypotheses, but um, we aimed to describe the minimum incidence and distribution of cases national- nationally of confirmed and probable congenital syphilis cases. Mm-hmm. Um, we also wanted to identify common risk factors of uh, pregnant people who um, had an affected infant and the treatment they received during pregnancy. Um, And then finally, we also want to describe the testing, management, and complications of uh, infants with confirmed or probable congenital syphilis. Yeah, so really looking at it from many multiple angles, which is, I think, the way that we have to look at congenital syphilis and these rates, because um, there's a lot of moving parts. There is, I think, even in our study, you guys will probably talk about this as well, um, just kind of looking at the risk factors, it's not, and reinfection rates. I mean, there's so many layers to this, right? And that's kind of what we're seeing locally as well. So um, so I know a lot of our audience is excited to hear, like, what are the preliminary study uh, findings and, um, and really what were the results? And I guess just for the audience to be aware, the study started back in, like, our, our data is from January 2022, right? Till December... 31st? I think it was uh, June, June 2021 was when okay. the study started. Okay, perfect. And so, and 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 basically, and it's still ongoing, um, just so yep. that our audience knows, and that's kind of why there's some preliminary results. So um, do you want to maybe give our audience um, some of the results, and then we can all uh, talk about um, and kind of elaborate on areas of it as well? Sure. So um, to date, we've had 166 um, cases of confirmed or probable congenital syphilis reported through the study uh, infrastructure. Um, you know, the me- mean age of birthing parent was uh, 27 years, but there was a wide range, uh, 17 to 39. Um, okay. You know, many of uh, um, the individuals lived in a, um, an urban area, predominantly two thirds. And uh, a third of them were from rural areas. Uh, the prairies were overrepresented with sort of 79, 80% of uh, all reported cases coming from there. Uh, the population groups of uh, the uh, pregnant people were uh, largely unknown. Uh, 40% of them were unknown. Uh, 45% were reported as uh, having First Nations background, uh, though this was all um, physician reported. 
Right. Um, and then sort of moving into the uh, risk factors, uh, there was uh, a large amount of unknown uh, data. You know, keep in mind that we're surveilling pediatricians who may not have access to the uh, uh, pregnant person's chart or uh, these questions may not have been asked. But the most common risk factor we saw was uh, substance use in pregnancy. Um, so that was uh, present in 66% of cases. Um, and then was followed um, with, um, you know, previous uh, child protection involvement, sort of in about a third of cases. Um, you know, but things like uh, housing insecurity and social assistance, um, you know, those were less uh, well known to pediatricians. Um, you know, in terms of substances that were used, uh, meth methamphetamines were the most common, sort of representing about half of um, of uh, the um, uh, substances. Okay. Um, you know, in it, it's important to note though that you know although this study like reports on uh, substance use as a um, a risk factor, uh, you know, substance use in the context of like structural risk factors like ha houselessness and income inadequacy, gendered and racial violence, um, these things are important and couldn't be well described in our data set. Right. Um, but, uh, you know, substance use we did find um, was associated with increased um, odds of inadequate prenatal care, lack of maternal treatment, and a diagnosed um, uh, sexually transmitted or bloodborne uh, co-infection uh, with uh, significant um, uh, p-values. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so some of the data, I mean, that you're presenting definitely is um, kind of consistent with more of like resources that are available, um, you know, housing, for instance, um, and and just kind of commenting on uh, the factors about uh, most of the cases were reported from urban centers. Um, now, this was in your guys' study based off of uh, where the testing was done or where the treatment was obtained? Uh, this was uh, based on the uh, patient's uh, uh, postal code, actually. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And yeah, I know like in Saskatchewan locally, there are a lot of, um, although people may be living in a remote community, um, their addresses could be, um, you know, listed in a more urban center um, yeah. for, for multiple reasons and also migration, right? So people are moving around um, and that type of thing. But um, so that was something that, kind of stuck out to me about your guys' preliminary studies as well. Um, but I think a couple of the factors that you're mentioning here all kind of go down to things that, you know, public health has been watching is really in the part of the public health sector, resources, prenatal care. Um, is it access to care? Um, you know, that's always a, a question whenever we think about these rates increasing. Um, is it, um, is it, is it lack of awareness in certain communities? Um, so I don't know if uh, Dr. Bullard, you mm -hmm. want to maybe touch on some of that, because um, I'm sure Manitoba and Saskatchewan are probably seeing uh, a similar trend in terms of why this is happening. Yeah, I, you're right. I mean, Saskatchewan and Manitoba have a number of parallels that we can draw. On. When I when I look at what's been going on with congenital syphilis, there's two things that you mentioned already: the preventative strategies that we can employ and the appropriate resourcing. Uh, of those strategies. And I think that's one of the main things that this study is hoping to inform because we were looking at 
the case definitions, which is something that public health uses to say, this is the number of kids that we have who are high risk enough that they warranted treatment. But we've broken that down into probable and confirmed, which we still do. Now, right. if you're to look at who ultimately becomes confirmed, that's a small portion of the high risk exposed infants when we consider probable. Right. If we eliminate that, we've got maybe a third, half of the number. And so the scope of the problem seems to be less than it actually is. When in reality, you know, you're spending about fifteen to $20,000 per high-risk syphilis-exposed child for follow-up and treatment and investigations in a hospital. And so that's the first step. You really have to say, this is the scope of the problem. This is what's going on. And the next point would be to get appropriately resourced for that. Now, prevention in public health is huge. That's what their focus is. Right. Um, and so there's a variety of ways we can do that. A lot of it is kind of test and treat and tracing. Um, and that works okay. And it works it works fairly well when we're talking about our GBMSM population. But right. as you kind of alluded to, Sam, or Rufina, it's very similar to Catch when we have our Indigenous population, which has a lot of migration would be the right word, but they go from the city uh, up north to the reserve and back. And it's not really clear where they, they always are, or what their primary residence is. Yeah. Um, and so that makes it hard to, to do that contact tracing. So I think novel strategies kind of have to be employed as yeah. well. Um, but I'm sure that Chris and other things too to say, I could keep going for a while. <laughs> but but I think that, yeah, that's that's part of what we were looking at do is to say, this is, this is, you know, the actual scope of the problem. Uh, these are the preventative strategies that we think have been used in different provinces. How effective have they been? Mm -hmm. um, novel strategies that we can employ because the test can trace and treat good, but it's not seemingly enough at this point. Yeah, like it's not capturing, I think, the population entire, like entirely. And that's, I think, where we're still getting some of these missed cases where... Um, you know, where they'll have no prenatal care and no access to the care, but then also we'll have reinfection rates, right? So that goes back to contact tracing and treating, testing. Um, a lot of our centers, we don't have, um, you know, labs that are testing in, in all centers. So some of the samples in our northern communities are going, you know, traveling, <laughs> the samples traveling few hours before we can actually get testing and the turnaround time for testing is long. And I know um, I actually in my first season had Dr. Amita Singh come on, who is one of our um, uh, STI specialists out in Alberta. And, and she talked a lot about her study with the point of care tests. And I know we've, you know, done a pilot project, implemented some of these measures. But again, does it really focus on testing and treating when you can't capture some of this population. Um, so again, it's multifactorial, and I think we've kind of brought that up. Um, but really for for this study, kind of the aim, I, I think this is probably one of the first studies that I've seen in Canada, across Canada, that's looked at numbers and and really looked at some of these risk factors that we're identifying, because I think that's where some of the hurdle was is that we don't have a national we prior to this in my in my to my knowledge and you guys can correct me if i'm wrong we didn't really have a national database for these um cases that we were seeing and i think it was more so 
local public health departments that are are really putting this data into into their databases, analyzing it at a local standpoint. But really, I think it's a, a larger, it's a national problem um, okay. and should be. And so I'm excited that we finally have something um, okay. where we can report these cases, because I think it's important to look at the trends, right? So trends that we're seeing, not just in one community, but overall. Um, and is that correct? Is this the first kind of large study that we've done in congenital syphilis in Canada? Yeah, uh, I would I would say so. Yeah, this uh, you hit the nail right on the head. You know, this study was um, you know generated a lot of public health interest just given the paucity of uh, case level data. Um, you know, the national reporting is one thing, but it doesn't have uh, you know the amount of detail that our study has. Yeah, and I think um, Jared, you brought up another really good important point, which is the costs that we are seeing. So costs of treating, testing, treating these infants, um, even if they fall into the probable case. I mean, first step is really, I think the case definitions, and I agree with you, that's where my challenges were here, you know, really uh, working with public health, like here closely working with public health, but having kind of different impressions of really what is a confirmed case versus a probable case. And I think that's so challenging when you're looking at it from a research standpoint and when you're looking at it from a clinical standpoint, right? Because some of the data doesn't really overlap um, and it's challenging uh, from that standpoint. But then when we look at how many cases, so I think there is some underreporting for sure um, and really minimizing the problem when it is actually larger scale, um, especially when you're looking at it from a clinical lens. Um, and so I think with with having a study like this, where we do have a case definition, where, you know, even though it's voluntary reporting, so there is some challenges with that. Um, but I think having something that's more centralized and um, almost a unified case definition for all of us to report these cases, I think is already the first step and the objective for me for this study, like, it was it was fantastic to see that we could actually, you know, all use the same case definition <laughs> and and submit these cases because we know from a clinical standpoint, we're definitely seeing more congenital syphilis than than that what the numbers are showing. So looking point for Pina for sure is like here in Manitoba, we have our clinical database of all the congenital syphilis cases. And then there's public health has their right. database of all the cases. And the lab has their database when we line them all up you're like wow they're they're quite different like why are they so different yeah. um that case definition is huge because we have a national case definition and then we have all the provincial ones too and so yeah. that's actually something that that i've been working on uh, is, is to realign the case definition and it is in fact informed and based on the work that, that carson and i and our, our co-investigators did that we're trying to make it so that everybody's saying the same thing. Uh, right. Yeah, no, that's huge. Um, <clears throat> start, sorry, Karsten, I think I cut you off when you were talking about some of the preliminary findings there. Um, was there anything, I think you had wanted to touch probably a little bit about some of the treatment and the outcomes in, in the congenital syphilis cases as well? Oh, yeah. No, um, and just kind of touching on what you had mentioned before, you know, uh, in terms of... Um, 
like uh, pregnant people coming with no prenatal care, you know, about a quarter of our cases we saw that in and only about a, another quarter had at least one prenatal visit per trimester, okay. uh, you know, and the, so like a significant portion of uh, people had no screening in pregnancy. And then of those who did screen positive, um, you know, a, about 20% actually didn't uh, end up getting treated uh, for one reason or another. Um, you know, we did we did see um, that chlamydia and gonorrhea co-infection were fairly common. Um, and then in terms of the babies, you know, recognizing that we don't know what we don't know in terms of missed cases, but of those that uh, were reported to us, uh, you know, most of them were diagnosed within the first month of birth, 97%, and then uh, about 90% of them had uh, treatment initiated within the first week of life. But, you know, as, as you've probably seen, uh, you know, many, uh, over half of our uh, babies had no exam findings of congenital syphilis. And so, um, you know, likely would have fallen into that probable category rather than confirmed and gone um, uh, flown under the radar of uh, the national case definition. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think this is always challenging about congenital infections is there's because asymptomatic is our most common presentation of most genital infections. And so mm -hmm. I, I don't know, this is a challenge I face clinically too, right? So you're trying to explain to even like parents who did get treatment, but then let's say got reinfected or did not have an adequate response uh, to treatment and trying to tell them, you know, that this, we still have to treat their, their infant, although they don't have any clinical findings. And so I think this is always something that's challenging. It's brought up by maternal services. It's brought up by NICU doctors. Um, it's something that's, it's challenging, but <clears throat> I, I do want, and, you know, I haven't done a full congenital syphilis episode because I'm waiting for our uh, CPS statement, uh, a new CPS statement to be released. And so we'll have um, Dr. Fennell actually come on an episode as well and and kind of uh, talk a lot about more of the clinical characteristics and et cetera. But so I won't go into that because really this is today's, um, although I have lots to say about all of that, but <laughs> um, I think today we'll focus a little bit more on the study itself. So <clears throat> is there something um, else that uh, you wanted to touch on, uh, Karsten, in terms of the preliminary findings before we kind of talk about so what is all this data going to help us do? Like, I, I want answers, right? Because I'm like part of the, I'm the, I'm the group that's like crying for help. And I need, um, I need, I guess, another angle to look at it. I don't think what we're currently um, doing is, is covering everything. And that's challenging. Yeah, you know, I, um, I think that, um, I think that the study is a good starting place in terms of, um, you know, describing some of the social factors that could be driving syphilis recurrence sort of across Canada. Right. Um, I think what this study has shown, you know, kind of from a high level is that it's hard for us to um, sort of identify the specific drivers of syphilis in specific geographic locales within Canada. You know, uh, Jared had said it best before, I think that, um, you know, we don't just have one syphilis epidemic in Canada, we have several, um, you know, and the drivers of syphilis are different within each um, community. Yeah. Uh, and so um, I think what we, um, 
we'll need to do is uh, look at sort of at a more granular level, what are the barriers to prenatal care? What are the predisposing factors to reinfection in pregnancy? Uh, and try to um, work with public health uh, and uh, you know patients and their communities uh, to develop these bespoke prevention strategies that are so desperately needed rather than a one size fits all solution. Uh, um, you know, but the the association that we were able to detect even with our um, large amount of missing data of substance use uh, should prompt public health, I think, to continue working to um, ameliorate the social circumstances that uh, predispose to, to that use. I would agree with that and expand on, um, I mean, there are a couple of things that we've done here in Manitoba already since 2016. We've been doing uh, prenatal testing for all SCBIs for uh, the first, second trimester and that delivery as well. And that actually results in capturing a number of children who we find out are high but it's very helpful um but like you in saskatchewan we also see women that we did find early in their pregnancy who got appropriately treated or responded neurologically and then got reinfected right around delivery yeah so without dealing with whatever the fundamental multifactorial issues are we're not really going to get on top of that um and looking at the different populations, one of the things that we really have said is, well, maybe we really need to have a much more holistic Indigenous-led approach here in Manitoba, which I think could apply in Alberta and Saskatchewan as well. And so we have an initiative that just started very recently here, where we're hoping that that is, is much more well-received in general. Because right. a lot of the more traditional methods of public health aren't, aren't quite achieving the goals we want it to. And like you, it's quite frustrating to, to see <laughs> these children over and over uh, affected. Uh, and it becomes normal, as you said, whether you're used to prescribing HIV medications and you can tell a person this is what you do for syphilis and you don't even have to think about it. Uh, yeah, then, it's scary. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not right. So. Yeah. yeah. No, I definitely, um, you know, I think the the challenge we had here in Saskatchewan, like initially it was a lot of it was awareness, right? So like prescriber and physician awareness of testing and, and making sure to test. So we've also, with the help of public health, been able to do a lot of prenatal testing. And I think because syphilis is on everybody's radar in the communities, people out in the communities, because we're not seeing them you know, the, the patients out in the community. And so really having our kind of GPs, family doctors, internists who are actually involved in their care, uh, in maternal care initially, you know, having them test and, and treat um, ha has really been part of what we've been focusing on. But apart from awareness, you know, I brought up something with our public health department here is that I don't think it's only awareness to a physician level or nursing level. I think we need to build about awareness to the public and something that public health should deal, you know, is dealing with and is constantly doing that is connecting kind of our resources to our public. And so we have started to do some ad campaigns and, you know, local community discussions in regards to you know moms of this birthing age that are are trying you know are trying to conceive or you know where we're seeing high high rates of syphilis to really 
to really show them like what can syphilis do if you do treat yourself and what we can prevent your child from having. And I think that's been kind of the angle that we've switched our, at least our webinars and our awareness talks to. Um, but again, it's still, you know, I mean, this is a huge problem. This is not going to be a one fix, um, one step, and then it's all fixed, right? So it's going to, like we just talked about, it's multifactorial. We're going to have to, yeah, I wish it was a snap of the finger. <laughs> that would be, it would make our lives easier. <laughs> um, but it's preventative, right? And that's why we're here today. We're talking about preventing syphilis um, because we all know that we can treat congenital syphilis. We've done it. We've seen the outcomes. We've seen our study. We've seen that most kids that we do identify get treated in the first week, you know, and they don't have poor outcomes because we can treat them. But we need to stop, you know, them from getting to the stage that Jared and I and Kirsten are seeing them at. <laughs> <laughs> we need to prevent um, all of that from even, you know, happening. And so I think that's kind of where our focus is with this study and and implementing some of this. So I think it's really important to look at risk factors because that's where prevention really is going to aim at. So I'm um, really happy um, that we were able to have this discussion. So so what is the future of our project? What what are we doing? <laughs> What's we're going forward? We're, I mean, we're obviously um, still reporting. Um, that's one of the things. Um, and so is there a second kind of analysis that's coming up or... I think um, I think uh, Jerry can speak to this a bit, but we're looking at um, seeing the cases that were reported and really suss out which of them would have been captured by the national definition versus those that were only captured by our study definition, just to sort of highlight how big of a discrepancy and how uh, how big the body of that submerged iceberg is in terms of um, uh, congenital syphilis in Canada, at least an estimate of that. Um, you know, the other thing that we thought about is, you know, now we now we we received a message loud and clear from pediatricians that um, the the barriers of these pregnant people to engaging in prenatal care and preventing infection are, are not known to them. And so I think we have to go to these families and communities and partner with them to try to, um, you know, identify, you know, at a really granular and local level, what uh, the barriers they're experiencing are um, so that we can, you know, help develop those effective community-led uh, prevention strategies. Um, so that's something that I think uh, Jared and I are uh, looking looking into in the future. And I'd, I'd be really uh, excited to hear what, what those findings might be later. Yeah. That's fair. I think that we have a really great opportunity here uh, the study, though, is only going to be the next couple of months before it's shut down. Uh, so I do encourage people that if you have cases, it's important to provide that data. And I, I do fully appreciate the, the burden of that is falling on <laughs> certain provinces and practitioners to, to provide it. And that's true here, too. People, they had to sit down and say, hey, let's, let's try to get this data in, which is important. Right? It's funny, yeah. what we can do for our patients. And so, um, but yeah, I think this has been a very useful study in a number of ways. And I think that there will be uh, a need to sit down and then discuss what are we going to do next? Um, because we're going to need to measure if our interventions on a public health level are effective or not. Uh, so repeating this study down the road five years, 
what have you might be an important step to take. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a really good, like important point that you bring up is that it has to be measurable, right? So um, it's difficult, you know, right now, a lot of our public health interventions that we've implemented there, there aren't a lot of, you know, repeat or relooks at how measurable this intervention was. And so is it really helping? Are we seeing cost effectiveness in our strategies? Um, I think all of that. And, and so definitely here locally, I've um, done some talks recently with public health and I was, uh, I already informed them that we're having this episode and that I will be sharing it with them. So I urge people to share this with public health, um, your local public health departments, because I think some of this will bring out awareness and kind of help guide. Is there some areas that maybe some of us aren't looking at, right? So some of the risk factors that we really need to tackle, um, are we, are we looking at it from all angles? So before we end the episode, um, what are some of the kind of key messages that either of you would like to give our audience or healthcare professionals out there, um, public health departments, um, kind of what you've learned from the study and and may help, um, you know, smaller centers? Because I know that we don't all have resources um, in, in all centers to kind of implement every um, uh, intervention. But if if we can do anything, what would be some of the key points that you guys would um, let us uh, give us an overview for? I mean, I think I think people are doing a tremendous job with the resources that they have available to them. So just just keep up the good work. Um, you know, if you if you think about there being a possibility of a pregnant person becoming infected or reinfected with syphilis during pregnancy, you know, like uh, you know, test test, treat, um, you know, uh, identifying these cases early uh, for con congenital syphilis is just so important for their long-term outcomes that, um, you know, no, no baby should be discharged without knowing their syphilis status or at least having that test be pending. Yeah, and I, I think I would echo much of that. Um, the people here in Manitoba and our public health uh, MOHs have been really excellent. Uh, they have a number of infectious disease specialists, health adults, and pediatrics who work together to try to make sure that we're getting needed. Um, we have a high prevalence of syphilis, so that's why we implemented doing regular prenatal testing. Uh, and it's important, like Carson said, make sure that you actually get these paired serologies in the mom and babies as they're born, because that's really important to make future decisions uh, on what's going on. Now, none of that necessarily helps in eliminating or preventing this right this is this is right finding these cases we're treating these cases and so i think that's going to take a little bit more of a coordinated effort i think that many of the provinces where we have high numbers are looking at strategies and starting to look at some more novel strategies as well which is encouraging uh, and then on the national stage we have like lots of work with definitions exploratory diagnostics and innovative ways of reaching populations. We have good research coming out talking about different ways we can potentially just treat concomitant STDBIs. Uh, right. So there's lots being done. And I think that I'm yeah. encouraged by what I'm seeing. And I think with the redirection of all of our resources post COVID, we should be able to hopefully scratch the surface at the very least or make a good dent. Yeah, no, you bring up a fair point. That's great. 
Um, so I think definitely I learned a lot from the study. Um, I have obviously in, am in a center where we are seeing a lot of congenital syphilis. Uh, we've done, you know, a lot from our public health. We have a good relationship, I think, ID and public health here that we're able to, we're lucky that we can implement some of um, some of the strategies. And I think we'll continue to work on those. But I think uh, definitely looking at some of the risk factors uh, from this study um, gave me a good kind of overview of maybe some of the areas that we are missing. Um, and so hopefully with our next set of analysis, we'll uh, get more information and uh, we'll continue to report on our end. So I really want to thank both of you for coming on the podcast. This was a much awaited um, podcast. I've had a lot of requests actually um, from some of the local physicians here, um, those that have been reporting, uh, just to kind of see what, <laughs> where is the preliminary, uh, like, you know, what all our hard work of reporting, what are, what are we seeing? <laughs> um, so I think it was fantastic to have two of our um, experts uh, in the area um, uh, on our podcast today. Before we end the episode, I do want to let everybody know that this is an informational podcast and there's no way to uh, endorse a product or a study and uh, is not in place of an infectious disease consultation. Thanks, Jared. And thanks, Carson. Thank you, Dr. Pierwall, And a special thank you to Dr. Bullard and Dr. Kruger. Have a topic suggestion? Email us at thecanadianbreakpoint at gmail.com and be sure to follow us on Twitter at CA Breakpoint. See you again soon at the Canadian Breakpoint. Breakpoint.